from KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, is prison necessary? That's a central question in the work of longtime prison abolitionist and scholar Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Her seminal book, Golden Gulag, analyzed California's role in propelling both the prison building boom and tough-on-crime sentencing. Now, with a spotlight on prisons as hotspots for COVID-19 and on our criminal justice system with calls to defund the police, Gilmore joins us to talk about the case for prison abolition. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We hear these days that California's once dangerously overcrowded prisons have stabilized and that its population of some 100,000 is at a 30-year low after court rulings and new laws and policies. But the question that longtime prison abolitionist and scholar Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore wants to ask is if prison is necessary at all. Gilmore is a longtime prison abolitionist, co-founder of the California Prison Moratorium Project and Critical Resistance, and a professor of geography and associate director of the Center for Place, Culture, and Politics at CUNY Graduate Center. Thanks so much for coming on Forum, Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore. Hi, how are you today? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for asking. I often hear prison abolition described as more than just closing prisons or removing people from prisons. What do you mean by it? Fundamentally, what prison abolition is, is figuring out how to live in a world in which prison is not necessary. And figuring that out is not a pie-in-the-sky scheme, nor is it something to defer to an endlessly distant future, but rather to think very hard about what people already do in all different kinds of communities, in all different kinds of situations, to um, not only respond to harm that might occur between people, but to prevent the very circumstances that lead to the possibility of uh, behavior or Mm. relationships that seem only to be solvable by putting one or more people into a cage. I see. So really forcing us to ask this question of what are the conditions that make harm less likely to occur. I I imagine, though, that an immediate question that often comes up is what should happen to the people who do do terrible things to others? What should happen? Well, let me tell you this. Abolition isn't a better kind of punishment. Rather, what we have done in all different kinds of communities struggling with all different kinds of situations is to, for example, Uh, confront problems of interpersonal harm, for example, domestic violence, by asking what kinds of relationships can develop between those who use 
physical force, their individual violence to try to solve problems, and their households and communities that wish to be free of that violence and yet don't want to try to displace that violence to another day by sending somebody into the prison industrial complex. So, for example, many, many people around the United States, particularly women, particularly women of color, working class, um, were in the 1980s convinced that the only way to solve the problem of domestic violence was to bring more and more police into the picture. Now, it's not that surprising that people who had uh, organized and uh, fulminated and indeed complained for years that domestic violence, household violence was not taken seriously by law enforcement had a point. But what people like Beth Ritchie and Andrea Smith and many others realized after the turn to what we've come to call carceral feminism had taken hold was that bringing law enforcement into the situation was not reducing, much less eliminating, problems of violence against women. Therefore, it seemed both that something else had to be done to end violence against women and something had to be done to change the kinds of relationships that, as I said earlier, constantly defer problems to some future resolution by sending someone away for a while. Mm. Uh, so women of color, uh, excuse me, insight women of color against violence uh, arose to uh, fulfill this particular role in social movement and to knit together small local groups around the world, indeed, who have been doing this kind of work. In fact, they um, came to critical resistance to challenge us in our early days in 1997, 1998, 1999, to make sure that we foregrounded that kind of uh, problem and uh, puzzle in our call for abolition. Indeed, Andrea Smith was one of the founders of both Insight Women of Color Against Violence and of Critical Resistance when we got started in 1997-98. What do you mean when you say, where life is precious, life is precious? I mean exactly what those <laughs> repetition says. What I mean is, that when people who are organizing themselves do not imagine and rely on the imagination that the way to solve a problem is by killing it, then all kinds of possibilities arise for resolving all kinds of things, whether the problem is sharing resources, whether the problem is working under conditions in which the um, workplace does not present occupational dangers, uh, as was the case and is the case for people who work 
in agriculture or who work in chicken processing plants or feedlots or indeed today, so many people who are essential workers in the United States in the context of the pandemic who themselves are made vulnerable to the pandemic because they are delivering our food from Amazon or they're delivering healthcare in under-resourced hospitals. In all of those instances, resolving the problem of some lives being less precious than others gives us insights into what kind of social and political and economic organization is possible so that the level of COVID deaths is lower, so that essential workers who deliver goods and services to households are not vulnerable to COVID or to other um, life-shortening uh, interactions, whether that life-shortening could be the possibility of one paycheck away from homelessness or inadequate or non-existent um, medical insurance or no access to hospitals, even if insured, because there aren't any hospitals in wide, wide areas of rural America or other reasons. So putting the preciousness of life at the center of abolition enables us to think about all of the presence of vulnerability in people's lives, but also how actually straightforward, analytically speaking, the problems are to solve. The hard part is political will. The easy part is seeing what to do. So would it be fair to say then that in imprisonment, you see basically the, the workings or maybe even the crystallization of a set of conditions that creates a culture of devaluing life, of not seeing life as precious? That's a very good way to put it. And one thing that we see uh, as, as we look around the planet is this. Um, while the United States still has the largest prison and jail population in the world, uh, when when measured by absolute numbers or measured by the rate of um, being locked up in the population, it's also true that going country by country by country, we see that wherever inequality is the deepest, prison is the most prevalent. And this is true in rich countries, middle income countries and poorer countries. So inequality gives us yet again a way of thinking about uh, the problems and therefore the possibilities um, that attach to valuing some life above other. Hmm. So do you, I mean, what you're describing really, it sounds like prison abolition as, as really an organizing principle, or I think the New York Times, um, when they did a really in-depth profile of you, called it a theory of change or quoted somebody calling it that. Have you joined the call to abolish police? And do you think it is also a theory of change? Should we think of the prison and police abolition movements as, as intertwined? Well, I think we have to think of them as intertwined. And the reason is this. Um, where life is not so precious, um, and here I'm still talking about human life, but we can extend our conversation later 
if we have time and talk about things like climate change. But where life is not precious, what we see is that uh, enormous groups of people who are in in all different kinds of circumstances. Again, urban, rural, different kinds of jobs, jobs that have special training, jobs that have uh, less formal training, but still are, are take a lot of diligence and attention and um, persistence, such as agricultural work or mining work, that kind of thing. Everywhere that we see that people are vulnerable to um, the kinds of things that lead to premature death, we also see that those same people have been increasingly over time abandoned. Abandoned, yes. Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore, we may have lost the, the connection there, but you know what? We are about 30 seconds from a break, and so we'll pick this up right afterwards. We're talking with Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore, co-founder of grassroots organizations Critical Resistance, the California Prison Moratorium Project, and the Central California Environmental Justice Network. She is also a professor of geography and associate director of the Center for Place Politics culture and politics at CUNY Graduate Center. We'll have more with her after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the movement to abolish prisons with Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore, a longtime prison abolitionist and scholar. And uh, just before the break, Dr. Wilson-Gilmore, you were talking about how the uh, prison and police abolition movements are intertwined in that it's important to think about them that way. Please finish your thought. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, so, in a nutshell, when, uh, as has happened in the United States and many places where inequality has deepened, uh, businesses, uh, employers, um, public welfare agencies, uh, food support, all of those things disappear. What has happened is that people experience abandonment, but that abandonment is not random. It's actually quite organized. When a government decides not to uh, extend broad-based public health assistance or decides to close a rural hospital or a major employer decides to leave an area in order to get away from, for example, unions, that is organized abandonment. And when organized abandonment happens, as happens, has happened over and over in the United States over the past 40 years, i.e. the same period that the United States prison population exploded, in order to kind of contour and shape and direct and manage the effects of that abandonment, what's happened is the forces of organized violence have increased. That means police, guards, prisons, jails, sheriffs. And those forces have increased not only in terms of the number of personnel, 
who wear uniforms, but also non-uniform workers. It also means equipment like automobiles and vans and trucks and uh, flashlights and all of those things that the forces of organized violence grow and shape what happens to those who have experienced organized abandonment. So yes, police abolition and prison abolition are part of a single movement. Now, some people who are listening to us talk about this today probably are thinking, oh, but Gilmore, don't you understand that police jobs and prison guard jobs are routes to middle income living that uh, modestly educated people have managed to get in the absence of jobs like working the line at General Motors or doing some other kind of blue collar, well-wage, secure job. Right. Yes, I know that. And the issue in abolition is not to make unemployed a whole new swath of working class people, but rather to reorganize how we use our public wealth, our annual revenue, our tax money, or what we might call our social wage, to do certain kinds of things in the community. Today, when we think about how hard it is for kids who are trying to learn via distance learning to stay focused and stay tuned in. And here I'm talking about kindergarten through 12th grade, not university students. We can see how vital it could be if the school districts doubled or tripled or quadrupled the number of people who were teaching class. And once this pandemic is over, if those small class sizes remained small, think how all of our children would flourish. So this is the way that abolitionists think. This is the way that prison and police abolition go together, not as an unemployment program for certain kinds of people, but rather as a program for re-employing our human and money and other resources to make our society strong and flourishing and healthy, and therefore by extension, much safer. And what generally do you know of the cost of prisons in the state of California? I mean, it's in the billions of dollars, right, to be able to perform this function of separating people from society. Sure, it's, it's, it has been for many years, uh, one of the biggest single chunks of the state budget, of the dis discretionary budget in the state. And even with the reduction of the number of people locked up, as you mentioned in the intro, the state is currently at a multi-decade low, but still high in the number of people in prison. Still, the annual expenditures for prison have stayed high because one, running each of those facilities is the same as running a small town, very expensive. 
Two, there is a lot of equipment and debt service that goes into keeping all of those prisons open. On top of three, the fact that about half of the expenditures for keeping any prison open is uh, salary. So both uniformed and non-uniform personnel salaries. Yes, it's a very big chunk of the California budget. But don't get me wrong. The view here is not that California or the city of New York or the United States should save money by closing prisons and jails and reducing the dependence on police force, but rather that, that those resources should be directed to other ends. This is not a money-saving scheme. It's not a small government scheme or an anti-tax scheme. Well, I want to invite our listeners to join the conversation. We're talking with longtime prison abolitionist and scholar Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore. And I want to hear what you think. What are your questions for her? What are your thoughts on, is prison necessary? Do you think a society without prison is possible? Why or why not? And what do you think actually about current prison reform efforts? Call us 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also reach us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Joining us now is Ashara Ikundayo. She is artist, curator, and cultural strategist, uh, and also curator of the upcoming show and auction titled Imagine Freedom, Artworks for Abolition. And it runs online from September 29th to October 13th at imaginefreedom.art. Ashara Ikundayo, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, well, really appreciate having you on. And, and what can you tell us about this exhibition? What might people see? Well, people have already started to see uh, a reimagining, uh, a reframing of how we view artists and artwork and culture and cultural workers in the movement to dismantle the prison industrial complex. It's uh, over 75 artists, over 25 movement builders, uh, a huge and beautiful host committee and a group of staff and members and volunteers and consultants who I would have to say have really taught me what it means to be revolutionary in mm. this time, in this age, as a curator, as uh, a cultural strategist, as someone who moves and pushes the culture uh, to reframe how we can be. I heard there are no images in which people are caged or shackled. And can you talk about the importance of that? Yeah, this is true. One of the things that I've, I've come to learn about critical resistance is that the, the framework and the visual politics uh, demand and invite us to always show ourselves as whole, as beautiful, healthy, and free. And so the, the politics also invite us to say, you know, we are not going to be caged. We're not going to cage each other. We're not going to be shackled um, and bound to each other in any way that is not healthy. And so there aren't any images in the, in the upcoming auction and exhibition that show that. I also heard that you were at the first Critical Resistance Conference 27 years ago at Cal, watching Dr. Gilmore and Dr. Angela Davis. And I was wondering how the process of making art about prison abolition today affected the way you think about it, especially as it relates to the current moment. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, I was. I've been reflecting on that, you know, for the past few weeks, uh, coming full circle. And I was, I was definitely sitting there on the floor. I was a graduate student at the University of Denver, uh, and a in a TA at the University of Colorado Boulder. My comrade, Dr. Joy James, brought a group of us to Cal uh, to listen to this first critical resistance conference, and Dr. Gilmore, Dr. Davis, and, and many other. Uh, revolutionaries and formerly in- incarcerated people, creative people, scholars, and friends uh, sat there. And for me, it was the first time I, I think I had heard the term prison industrial complex or prison abolition. And so, I mean, becoming, I really, I think, say, stepping into my work as an artist and a, an organizer has always been framed by the the output, the production, the conversations that artists have brought, you know, to the table. There isn't any movement on the planet that hasn't been framed by cultural workers. And so my continuing to witness and see artists as first responder, uh, and also me knowing right now in this moment for sure that artists are essential workers, that we did not stop, can't stop, won't stop. Uh, We know that this is part of the way in which critical resistance utilizes art and art making as a tool to amplify the message, to look at the systems and dismantle them, uh, policing, surveillance, and and all of the ways in which uh, we believe that by locking up people that we will be safer. It's simply not true. Well, Ashara Aikandayu, I really appreciate you coming on. And I should mention that you'll be in conversation with KQED's Pendarvis Harshaw tomorrow at 8 p.m. for an online event. So you can also catch her there. Ashara Aikandayu, thank you. Thank you so much. And we've got some comments coming in. Beth writes, when my husband was hit and left disabled by a drunk driver, we asked the judge not to send the driver to prison, but to choose work release instead. The man lived and worked in Pleasanton. He was newly married and our entire family felt work release would allow him to keep his job and see his wife daily and would save the taxpayers lots of money. The judge agreed to our request. The man is still married and working. I can sleep at night, even though my husband died as a result of his injuries. Wow. Um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, I, I wonder what your reaction is to that, because certainly we know that survivors or victims' families, they have asked to have the people who perpetrated actions against them or killed them to to feel the full weight of the law and to be imprisoned. And in fact, in many ways, that's what is also being called for in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd. Well, not everybody is calling for that. No, not everybody. The killing of George Floyd. And and I have several things today to say. First of all, I want to thank the person who who called in and shared (laughs) her uh, experience strength and hope with us. Uh, It's very important for people to hear that, um, and I mean this with with great um, respect, that ordinary people come to extraordinary decisions at the hardest moment of their lives, at the hardest moment of their lives. Um, One thing that I've talked about quite frequently over the years, and many of us have, who have been uh, at the center of the contemporary abolition movement is that on the one hand, we all have our own stories of loss and death to tell. On the other hand, we'd like to persuade people that one need not have to have a story of loss and death 
to say there has to be something better we can do than to have loss and death responded to by more loss and more death. This, this is at the heart of how we think. So for example, I'll give, I'll give a couple of examples. Um, in many faith communities of all different kinds in the United States, people have wrestled over the years with the question of what should be done. So, you know, in the extreme case, uh, questions about the death penalty, but even more near in cases, should faith communities, should the, the very institutions that exist because at their core, at their core, life is precious, should they step up and embrace abolition? And we have had so many different kinds of encounters over the years with people in small churches and large churches around the country and indeed around the world. So those are some of the people indeed, people from faith organizations who have stepped forward and become um, at first reluctantly and sometimes more uh, vocally leaders in the movement, whether the movement uh, brought them uh, to consciousness because of what happened in Ferguson with Mike Brown's death or what happened in Minneapolis with George Floyd or with Sandra Bland or Tony McDade or whomever. So there's that. The second thing is that many people who have uh, made a living and made a life and made a difference working in the context of what we call the prison industrial complex, have themselves come to stop and think and be introspective and then organize against its aggrandizement. So an example of this are people who have taught in the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, in some cases for their entire career, who believed in the good work that they did, and it is good work that they did, teaching people in prison uh, to be literate, to, to learn, uh, to be able to uh, think critically and so forth, who uh, after the system grew and grew and their role in the system, their, the teacher's role in the system shrank and shrank, began to see that they actually had to mobilize against the very institution in which they made their livelihoods for what they do teaching to be meaningful anymore. So that's another example. And there are so many, there mm. are so many. Well, let me bring Jonelle in Oakland on. Hi, Jonelle. Hi, how you doing? Great, go right ahead. So I just wonder, what do you do with the extreme cases? I mean, it seems like it seems like on the extreme, say, right, you would have the death penalty. And then it seems like you're on the extreme left with abolishing prison. But what do you do with the, the rapists? What do you do with the arsonists? What do you do with somebody who kicks in your door and home invade your house? Uh, what do you do with, with those people? You know, um, this do? seems like... Janelle, yeah. Sorry, I think she's trying to jump in. Uh, go yeah, right ahead. With you what do we do on. with the terrible few? There's always that question. So, so let's say there's a terrible few, and let's say they, they number 10 or 20,000 people out of the 2.3 million people locked up today. Let's leave them aside for a moment and talk about everybody else, and talk about everybody else. But as the, the caller 
um, uh, shared with us, terrible things can lead to a different way of being in the world. Well, I definitely want to get into this more because we're also hearing from listener Don, who writes, I've heard long lists of who's affected, long dissertations on why this is a problem. What is the alternative to prison for people who are not safe in society like serial violent offenders? So we'll dig into that and get straight to more calls after the break. Again, I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Ruthie Wilson Gilmore, talking about prison abolition. Stay with us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the movement to abolish prisons with longtime prison abolitionist and scholar Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore. She's currently professor of geography and associate director at the Center for Place, Culture, and Politics at CUNY Graduate Center. Her forthcoming book, Change Everything, Racial Capitalism and the Case for Abolition, will be published next year. She's also well known for Golden Gulag, Prisons, Surplus, Crisis, and Opposition in Globalizing California. And if you want to join the conversation with your questions for Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore, to share your thoughts about whether prison is necessary and whether you can imagine a society without it. Um, and also any thoughts you might have on efforts at prison reform, you can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org, or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. And again, just before the break, Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore, I mean, we had touched on it in the early on in the show in terms of what does society do with those people. And you were starting to answer that question with setting aside for a moment the focus on them. Setting aside for a moment the focus on them. It's really quite interesting to me um, and speaks a lot to how we are in the world that uh, the quickest um, uh, image uh, that leaps to many people's minds is an image of uh, a, a terrifying, uh, uncontrolled serial something, right? Those people are not legion. The, the fact that the number of people who are locked up in California prison is an all-time low should give people an understanding of that fact. The fact that in many societies, uh, as as complex and diverse as the United States, um, the high levels of organized violence, uh, punishment, uh, and, and long sentences don't happen, also compels us to look at what everyday life is like there. And what we see is that people don't resort to violence to express themselves in any way, either to take your things or to exert dominance over you or otherwise to put them uh, above you, which is what the uncontrolled violence that so many people fear is uh, mostly about. This we can see, we can see it in societies, we can see it in poor societies and in less poor societies. We also see, for example, that in, um, in places where the sort of conditions of everyday life are extremely challenging and um, not secure for many people, when people organize themselves to demand the government provide more policing, 
the policing didn't solve the problems because the problems came from the fact that the people were abandoned to the situation of having inadequate housing, inadequate health care, the other things we've been talking about. Finally, there have been so many, many, many um, uh, inquiries made of ordinary people throughout the United States asking them what they're afraid of. And most people actually don't say, I'm afraid of crime. Most people say they're afraid of becoming homeless, becoming jobless, getting sick. So if we focus on the fears that perhaps don't make for titillating television, but do make for uh, understanding what it is that brings anxiety to people that is, you know, something that can produce uh, the vulnerability to cancer, for example, for anybody, mm -hmm. then again, we can see that prison abolition is about life, not an alternative punishment system. Well, Lauren tweets, thank you, Ruthie, for centering precious life in the abolitionist movement. Yoli writes, the more you educate, the better society will be. That's where the resources should be. Let me bring Ellen in from Santa Rosa in. Hi, Ellen, join us. Hi, thank you for uh, having me on. Uh, I'd like to say I'm an ex-high school teacher. I have a master's degree. I um, also have a certificate to teach reading. Uh, I've taught in some of the worst schools in the United States, starting in Washington, D.C., Oakland, California, and substitute taught at Juvenile Hall in Sonoma. And I'd like to say there's a very serious connection between our discriminatory educational system, where poor and brown children go to schools that are more overcrowded, don't have the best teachers, the teachers are paid a lot less, and no one has been able to explain to me by the time I get these kids in high school and they're all smart and there's nothing wrong with most of them. They don't know how to read above the third grade level. Um, I got paid $43,000 to teach in uh, West Oakland, uh, a guard at Juvenile Hall in Sonoma County. Uh, starting salary is about $60,000 a year, plus mm. they get paid overtime. Ellen, I think I understand what what you're saying there, and I appreciate you you sharing that comparison. Let me just see if I can quickly get Javier in and then have Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore respond to both calls. Javier in Riverside, join us. Yes, my question is... Uh, or Xavier, outside sorry. The, Yes, uh, outside the United States, what are the top three shining examples of this theory of less inequality equals less incarceration. And uh, the second part of the question, is there a predominant religion associated with these areas? Thank you. Thank you. Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore. Okay, uh, predominant religion associated with this area, these areas, no. Um, one of the places that is uh, right in, in between, and it's a country I know extremely well, is Portugal. And Portugal actually has relatively deep inequality, but it also has an extremely well-developed public welfare system for uh, education, for health, for transportation, and so forth. And although in Europe, the uh, level of incarceration is a bit high, it is way lower, way lower uh, by comparison than anything we see in the leading carceral 
countries such as the Russian Federation, Brazil, India, South Africa, the United States, the United Kingdom. We also see that uh, in some places, let's, let's take Spain, for example, or Costa Rica, the levels of incarceration are extremely low and the levels of um, ratio of police to other public servants is quite different from what you'll find again in the United Kingdom or the United States or the Russian Federation or Brazil. So you notice that I'm talking about places that are quite different around the, the world. Um, and then I, want, I wanted to make a comment about um, the uh, teacher, Ellen, I believe yes. her name is from Ellen. Santa Rosa. Thank you for calling in. Um, so many pe people talk about uh, sometimes with a sneer, oh, this study and that study and the other study. Well, we study things for a reason, and that is to make it possible for people to make good decisions about the precious lives that are in our hands and the resources that we have at our disposal to do something about the precious lives. Now, Jonathan Kozel, somebody who used to get on my last nerve, did write the same book over and over and over again, trying to get people to read it. And those books that he wrote about public education in the United States can be summed up as Ellen did with one image. He talked about the fact that he was trying to convince a young woman who had become a school teacher and who was sent off to teach in an urban school in uh, the city of New York, I forget which borough, I'd say probably the Bronx, to, he was trying to convince her not to quit. Why was she going to quit after a week? Because her classroom did not only lack adequate textbooks for the kids, it didn't have enough desks for the kids to sit at. That's how much the unpreciousness of life, the devaluation of life is expressed in our public school system. And again, it is notably poor black and brown kids, but there are a lot of white kids who are abandoned too. And there, that gives us some understanding why it is that half of, well, let's talk about police violence, half of the people police kill in the United States are white. So half are not white, half are white. A third of the people who get sent to prison and jail are white. They're poor too. If you watch that terrible show that was on for decades and decades, cops, you see them going after modestly educated white people too. This is a problem for working class people in the United States. Race is one of the key factors that gives us some perception into how people are abandoned, but that abandonment goes through all different kinds of communities throughout the United States. The abandonment adds up to poison water in Flint, Michigan, lack of healthcare in rural uh, America, the criminalization of everyday life everywhere, and, and, a, and the idea that so many people share that the reason they feel so anxious is because somebody's coming to hurt them. Well, that may be, but the somebody is not even a police officer. It's not even a prison guard. It's the organized abandonment that leaves people trying to figure out how to belt in their tights and secure their perimeter and keep out somebody who they ought to actually reach out their hand to and be in solidarity with.
Um, we are getting a couple of comments here that I'd love for you to address just before a quick break. Gaw writes, what do you do with the serial killers? Michael tweets, so what should be done with serial killers like the Golden State Killer? I think while listeners are understanding your point about focusing on those who don't, right, the legions, as you say, I think there is this real appetite to know what to do with people who, who are in the system now who've committed terrible crimes and what you would recommend be done. Leave them there. And as soon as we get, we resolve every single problem that I have described, then we'll come together and have a huge meeting and decide what to do about the terrible few. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And let me go now to Claire in Santa Barbara. Hi, Claire. Hi, can you hear me? I can. Go right ahead. Uh, so I'm a nurse and uh, I'm working at my first job in a county jail right now. Um, and within one month of starting there, um, I started recognizing a lot of people coming back after release. And so I feel like the title of corrections, especially they call us correctional nurses, right? Um, it's so incorrect, especially if I'm seeing so many people come back. So I'm wondering if you could talk about recidivism. Recidivism. Thanks, Claire. Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore. Recidivism. I mean, in many ways, that is, in part, one of the reasons for your argument. That is the reason for my argument. Um, let me give you an example. In the state of California, for a very long time, about half of the people who were released from prison went back to prison. So it sounds like, oh, man, what a bad, bunch of bad actors. Why are they going back? Why are they going back? The reason is, um, one... Many people uh, were sent back because of what's called a technical violation, i.e. rule infraction, that didn't mean that they had done anything against some uh, a new offense against a, a law. Second, because people have a very um, challenging time uh, in many cases because of the general rejection of so many people who have gotten um, uh, sucked in to the jail and prison industrial complex, who have nowhere to go when they're out, so, so go back. And three, because again, I'm just going to keep harping away on this, because the way we use our resources make it almost impossible for people to maintain themselves outside. I will give you two examples. The first one is in Los Angeles, uh, the city of Los Angeles, in what's the historical Skid Row, there are about 15,000 or so houseless people who live there. Their home is there, but they have no house. The level of policing that is applied to that small area, that is laid on that small area, is such that people there are arrested, arrested, arrested over and over and over again. And we know that in the United States, arrest an arrest is, has become, over the years, more and more likely to lead to uh, being locked up, at least for a while. So the total number of arrests is down. But when somebody's arrested, it means they're going to be locked up for, for a while. In that area, in Skid Row, uh, as many people have studied it to shreds, uh, some people, a couple of economists worked out that for the same amount of resources in terms of money, the city of Los Angeles could build housing 
four people who live there put nurses, so not correctional nurses, and other um, social welfare uh, helpers in those buildings pay the debt on the construction for people, have very few go into back into jail. And um, at the end of the day, they would actually, the city of Los Angeles would spend more money and people would be better off. So that's an example. Another example is that many, many people do what my friend, the great Susan Burton calls life on the installment plan. That is to say, get out, get in trouble, go back, get out, get in trouble, go back. When, and she had been doing this uh, many years ago. Susan and I are around the same age. We were born in the middle of the last century. The last time Susan got out, she said she, she managed to stay out and she stopped and reflected, well, what is it? What, what was different for me this time that, that enabled me to stay out? And she realized that somebody helped her to have a place to stay that had a sober environment. Somebody helped her get uh, an ID card so that she could uh, cash checks and go to the store. Somebody helped her be reunited with her children. Somebody helped her do very, very simple things. When Susan realized what the pattern was, she started something called a new way of life and persuaded the warden at the last prison that she had done time in to start directing women released from prison to Susan. And a new way of life has changed change the lives of people who now don't go back to prison. There's also Time for Change Foundation. There are many, many, many organizations like this. So at one extreme, there's the problem of life sentences and other endless punishments that people in California and elsewhere have been fighting against uh, in very uh, organized ways. At the other extreme, there are people who try to figure out uh, in their way, whether they call themselves abolitionists or not, how to abolish the conditions under which prison becomes uh, an answer for problems when there are many other answers to the problem. So we get our minds off thinking everything is crime because the only uh, thing we have to deal with the nail of every single problem that uh, occurs to people is a hammer. We can do things differently and we do things differently. People are already realizing abolition, again, whether or not they call themselves abolitionists. Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore, her next book is Change Everything, Racial Capitalism and the Case for Abolition. It'll be published next year. She's also co-founder of the grassroots organization's Critical Resistance, the California Prison Moratorium Project, and the Central California Environmental Justice Network. Her seminal work, Golden Gulag, Prison's Surplus Crisis and Opposition in Globalizing California. Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore, thanks so much for making your case today on our air. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And thanks to our listeners for their questions and their comments and their stories. Ariana Prail produced today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts.